If you grab your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I love, uh, I feel when I come to a conference like this, it, it dawns on me how um, blessed that we are at Providence Church to have Matt Boswell lead us in worship every Sunday. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really incredible. So uh, Matt um, has been serving with me for about seven and a half years at Providence and uh, we are, have just... Uh, um, announced at our church that we're planting him as, a, as the lead pastor of our third church plant, which will be just about um, 10, 15 miles north of where we are in Salina, Texas. So be praying for Matt. I'm really excited about what God's got uh, in store for him. So uh, yes, my name is Afshin. Let me help you out really quickly because you're probably wondering what in the world. So here it is. I, t- I do this everywhere I go. So you just think of the hair product, which I'm sure most of you use, Afrosheen, Okay. <laughs> And you take the R-O out, all right? And that's my name. So Afshin, right? You got it? It's easy, right? And my last name is Ziafat. Just don't call me Izafat or, you know, whatever. I heard all those, okay? So anyways, um, my family is from Iran. I uh, was uh, born in Houston, as you heard, when I was two, moved to Iran. When I was six, the revolution hit, moved back, was given a New Testament by a second grade tutor. Read it 10 years later, growing up in a very... Uh, strict Muslim home. My father found out, made me choose between him and Christ. And by God's strength alone, I chose Jesus and my father disowned me. Um, Went upstairs to my room and said, God, how could you let this happen? And the Lord led me to Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my father in heaven. Do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword for I've come to turn a man against his father a daughter against her mother, a man's enemies with the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I want you to know my story. I stand up here telling you my story is not about look at me and how faithful I was because the truth is I went kicking and screaming most of the way. My story is, look how faithful God was. Because when I walked away from my family, uh, my father opened door after door for me in ministry. uh, Ultimately, allowing me to, as you heard, go into the Middle East and train Iranians, go full circle, who go back to Iran and plant underground churches, many of whom have been in prison. And then my relationship with my father has been restored. We're still praying for him. He has Alzheimer's. So you pray for my dad, Ebrahim. Um... By the way, I'm having a son in two months. I'm going to call him Isaac. And I think you know why. But anyways, uh, my dad three years ago came and heard me preach for the first time uh, in 20 years of ministry. And my message, he surprised me. My message was John 19, it is finished. And I talked about what did Christ finish. And he walks up to me with tears in his eyes and hugged me and said he was proud of me. And that's the closest I've gotten. I've been shared the gospel many times, but... I wasn't even planning on going there, but that's my story. (laughs) And so now here we are back in Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm so thankful for Dr. Carson for leading us so powerfully through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Really, it's my go-to passage whenever I want to share the gospel. We do a thing called Starting Point at Providence, my home church, where anyone who is interested in Christianity, wants to learn about the faith, comes to this thing called Starting Point, and we walk them through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And so I love the, the g- glorious truth of but God in verse 4. And we are doomed without those two words, but God. 
because of him, not because of anything we've done, because he is rich in mercy and love. Together with Christ, he's raised us up and seated us with Christ. And so what a beautiful picture. And I love that Dr. Carson ended by talking about that the gospel transforms. And, and really, that's where we're going with this next section. The saving work of Christ in our lives not only affects our relationship with God, but it also affects our relations with others. It must. When the grace of God transforms a life, it never terminates on that person, but it's always meant to work through that person to impact others. And you see this all throughout Scripture. This is why when Jesus was asked again the greatest commandment, uh, as uh, Dr. Carson mentioned earlier, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. They're inseparable, all right? In fact, you really prove that you have the love of God by being able to love others. This is no wonder why Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so I think it's not stretching the point biblically to say that if your relationships are not changed to be marked by love, then that casts some serious doubt on whether you truly know the love of God. As John also says in 1 John chapter 4, if anyone does not love, he does not know God, for God is love. And so it should be no surprise to us to find that the Apostle Paul is kind of following this same progression in Ephesians chapter 2. He moves from looking at how the gospel transforms you and your standing with God to how it transforms your standing with others, especially with the people of God, the church. So let's read in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, that you have given us your word and you've given us your promise that your word accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent and that it does not return void. And that's our prayer, Lord, that your word would fall on our hearts on fertile soil and accomplish its purpose in our lives. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to guide and direct us, to remind us of your ways, of your truth. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that through this broken vessel, you would speak powerfully your word. 
and your truth. And you would open eyes as only you can to the truth of the gospel and how it impacts all of our life. And God, may lives be changed, not because of this guy in the pulpit, because I have nothing to bring, but Lord, because of your word and because of your power. We love you, we need you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So three movements in this section that we just read. And I think they can be marked by these three notes. Remember, but now, and then so then. Remember, but now, and then so then. And so in verse 11 through 12, twice he says, remember. Remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So before we get to that point of remember, let's get the scene before us. Who are the players? Paul is addressing the Ephesians as Gentiles who are called the uncircumcision. And they're called this by those who are called the circumcision. The second group obviously refers to the Jews, the Israelites, the chosen and set apart people of God. And if you remember, they were given circumcision as a sign of the covenant that God made to their father Abraham in Genesis 17. When God made this covenant that I will be God to you and your offspring after you. And he established an everlasting covenant. And he sealed it with a sign of circumcision. So the Jews calling the Gentiles uncircumcision meant that they were saying you do not belong to the covenant people of God. And furthermore, it was used in a derogatory way. It was expressive of a self-righteous abhorrence of Gentiles as being unclean. It was a term of derision. So friends, this Jew-Gentile divide, this was religious, racial, social divide at its worst. It is as severe an illustration of racism as there ever has been. And so now, although Paul is going to affirm the fact that the Gentiles are without Christ cut off from the people of God, that is true. What's interesting is notice that he adds this phrase about the circumcision. He says, which is made in the flesh by hands. Uh, And that's a, a, a marker for us to know that what he's referring to there is he's letting us know that he doesn't believe mere outward right of circumcision can convey holiness or God's favor to anyone. And so in Romans chapter 3, he says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit and not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It's not by an outward work. All right? That's why in Philippians 3, he, he says, We are the circumcision. Who? Who's the we? Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Those who have come to saving faith in Christ and who have come to the end of themselves and have confessed that they're sinners and have no good in and of themselves and turn to the mercy of Christ, they are the true circumcision. So he starts with setting the stage and then what does he do? He says, remember. Twice he says, Remember that you were once cut off. Now, a key theme throughout Scripture is this idea of remembrance. Oftentimes you find in Scripture that people forget 
and they stray away from God. They forget the immeasurable riches of grace that we have in God. The judges cycle. If you study the book of Judges, right? When Joshua dies, a generation rises that did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And so what do they do? They turn to the false gods and they, they, they disown God. They walk away from God. And so God has to rise up a, a judge to go and remind them again. And then again they forget and straight, and this cycle keeps going on and on and on. And this is the reason why God, uh, one reason why God set up two memorial suppers, the Passover supper, the Lord's supper, again, to remind us constantly of what He has done for us. Do this in remembrance of me. See, the reason is very simple and it's what sets the true living God of the Bible apart from every other false religion of the world. At the end of the day, what motivates us to live for God and to keep His commandments is not fear, but gratitude. Knowing what He has done for us. That's why the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters are essentially telling you what God has done for you in Jesus. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us before you could do anything to earn it. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. All of this is laying out what God has done. And then Romans 12.1, what does He do? Therefore, in view of God's mercy, look back and see if you really get chapter 1 through 11. Then offer your bodies the living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service, your spiritual act of worship. The word actually means logical. In other words, it's a, the logical response to knowing chapters 1 through 11 of Romans is to lay your life down in service to God. And so this is what Paul is doing here. Remember, it's so important that you were without Christ and therefore you were not part of God's people and therefore you were without the covenants and therefore you were without the promises contained in the covenants. And so therefore you are without hope and without God. This is a result of the fall from the time of Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve, if you do not know the Scriptures, hear this. When Adam and Eve had perfect relationship with God and they were told not to eat from one specific tree and they were warned, if you eat from this tree, you will die. And the enemy comes and says, no, no, no. You're not going to die. God's trying to keep something from you. He knows if you eat from the tree, you'll be like Him. And so they took from the tree... And the Bible says that's when sin and death entered our human existence and spread to all mankind. And as a result of that sin, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, out of the presence of God. God putting a flaming sword at the edge of the garden as if to say for mankind to come back into the presence of God, someone must fall under the sword. There must be the, the, the payment of blood for the remission of sins. For someone to come back into the presence of God. And so this is a result of, of the fall. If you do not have Jesus Christ, you are still in that state. As, as, as we, we learn in Ephesians 2, you are still dead in your sin. All right, I read a Muslim scholar who once said, I liken the notion of Jesus to my sitting on a dock by the bay. No, he didn't say that. But you know where I'm going with that, right? Okay, so sitting on the dock... And a man running by and telling me that he loves me, throwing himself in the water and drowning himself to prove his love for me. He says, that's what I like in the notion of Jesus. <clears throat> and I read that and I go, see, there you go. A Muslim thinks he's on the dock. 
When I first became a Christian, I, I started to learn. I thought what it meant was, oh, what Christianity meant was, no, 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 I'm not on the dock. I'm drowning. But then I started studying the Bible more, and I realized, no, 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 I'm not even drowning. I'm at the bottom of that water, dead. And a dead man can do nothing for himself. A sick man can go see a doctor. A dead man needs someone to make him alive. That's what he's saying here. Man, you are without hope. You are hopeless. Remember that you are hopeless. The point that is being driven home is that it's drastically vital to your spiritual health to never cease to be amazed of where you have come from. And so this, where I'm taking us from, is from new life to new unity. Not where I, where Paul is taking us to, is new unity. And so before we even think about being unified, the first step is to remember and to be motivated by that gratitude. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 when he says to the Philippians, be of the same mind, be unified. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. All right, But put others before yourself. Put the interest of others before yours. Consider others more significant than yourselves. And then he knows you're never going to be able to do that in yourself. So he says, have this mind in you which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and came in the form of a bondservant and became obedient to the point of the death of the cross. What is he doing there? He's saying, you want to be unified. I want you to be unified. The way to be unified is to be humbled. To be humble is to put others before yourself. And when the church is doing that, counting others in the body more significant than than myself, when we're all doing that, we become unified. And so how are you going to do that? How are you going to be humble and put others before yourself? You're never going to do it unless you put your eyes on the cross and you remember what he did for you. See, it's only when you have that remembrance that you're going to be able to put others first and be united. See, let me, let me illustrate it this way. So I, I flew Southwest Airlines to Oakland last night. How many of you have flown Southwest Airlines? Raise your hand. I'm pretty sure everyone. Okay, good. Southwest Airlines, to my knowledge, is the only airline that doesn't assign you a specific seat. You, you with me, right? You've, you don't get a specific seat. You get a boarding group. or You get like a letter and a number, right? And so first they board A, 1 through 30, then they board A, 31 through 60, then B, 1 through 30, then B, 31 through 60, and on and on it goes, okay? So the first group, uh, you, 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 you board, and uh, here's how the boarding process goes. I, I don't think ever I've seen someone have A, 1 and go, you know what? I'm going to go to the very back of the plane and sit right by that bathroom, and I hope that door opens all the time, right? No one does that. What are we going to do? We're going to sit at the very front of the plane on the aisle so I can have a spot for my stuff up here and I can be the first one off because it's all about me. And we're going to go down that aisle till about maybe 10, 15, that, and then it's too far down. Then we'll start filling in the windows. But no one fills in the middle seat. That's kind of, you know, that's off limits. That's where you put your stuff and you hope that no one takes it, right? All right? And so by the time the C-minus crew gets on, they're looking at a plane full of available middle seats, Right? And by the way, the way you get an A+, plus, A1, 2, 3, now if you, know, you got to pay something extra to do it. Or you got to get your boarding pass really early, right? If you skate in late, you're going to get C-, minus, right? So you got to do something to get in the A1 through 30 crowd. And one day I was boarding on the C- minus crowd. 
And the guy was in front of me with his son. And we walk in, and sure enough, a plane full of available middle seats. And so he had the audacity to ask the lady in the first row aisle seat if she would mind going in the second row middle seat so that I could sit here with my son. And she went, ah. Oh. And like everyone in the first few rows was like, ah. Oh. I mean, their face was like, who are you, Mr. C minus, right? Rolling in here and telling me to, I mean, it was just like, I mean, he, she didn't say all that. Her face did. And he just goes, oh, never mind. He moved on. And he asked someone like in the middle of the plane, hey, do you mind switching? Let me sit with my son. And I thought that's so interesting. And just in my mind, I started kind of imagining, what if, what if the way she got that A plus ticket, that A1 ticket, let's say, was totally different? I'm not saying this could happen, but what if she missed her previous flight and she, all the other flights were booked and she had to get to her destination and she's sweating and she's bawling, crying. She's saying, please let me on. Sorry, ma'am, we have no seats. No seats for you. And she's begging to get on. And then let's say somebody overhearing her says, you know what, she can have my ticket. I don't need a fly today. And hands her that A-plus ticket. And let's say that's how she was on that plane in that seat. Now enter father and his son. Uh, excuse me, ma'am, do you mind sitting in the second row middle seat so I can sit here with my son? I'd be willing to bet she'd pop up out of that chair and say, it's yours. Why? Because I'm on the plane. And I don't deserve to even be on the plane. Do you see how when you think you did something to earn it, entitlement sets in. But when you have a view of the gospel, entitlement goes out and you put others before yourself and unity takes place. So you've got to remember, he says, remember that you were cut off. Then secondly, he moves from remember to but now. Now verses 3 through, I mean 13 through 18 is, is uh, so rich that I can't even do it justice. It needs probably several sermons by somebody much smarter than me. But I'll try to lay out the flow of thought. Verse 13, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, now that's a very important phrase. In Christ Jesus, meaning uniting yourself to Jesus through faith in his finished work. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So far off means to be separated from God again. Brought near means again to be brought into his presence, into the favor of God. And by the way, that brought near is really the entire biblical narrative in, in, in a short phrase. That is the redemptive plan of God. He is redeeming a people who have been cast away, who have been separated because of their sin. He is on a mission redeeming a new people to him, drawing them through the work of his son. That's why 2 Corinthians 5 says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, bringing them back into a right relationship with. And so how are we brought near? We're brought near by the blood of Christ, he says. Now this passage, verses 13 through 18, they definitely imply the resurrection. The resurrection is implied, but they really center on the death of Christ. You hear phrases like the blood of Christ that he's united us in his flesh, that we have access through the cross. So it's speaking of the death of Jesus. How are we brought near to God when we're separated? We're brought near by his death. 
What did the death of Christ accomplish? Follow his flow of thought. It kills the hostility and brings peace in two directions. With God and with man. So with man, it reconciles Jew and Gentile. Again, two who were divided uh, and, and, and at enmity against each other. He, it brings two and makes them both one. That's what he says here. He creates in himself one new man in place of the two. How does it reconcile us to God? It reconciles us both to God. Through him, we both have access to the Father. Now, so stay with me. We're brought near. How are we brought near? Through the death of Christ. What does the death of Christ do? It brings peace by killing the hostility. Okay? Then how does it do that? The answer is in verse 15. How does the death of Christ remove hostility with God and between Jew and Gentile? How does it bring peace? How does it reconcile? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, at first glance, this may sound confusing. After all, didn't Jesus say that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law? What does it mean that he's abolished the law expressed in, in, in ordinances, the commandments expressed in ordinances? It doesn't mean that the law was set aside and just dismissed frivolously. No, what it means is that Christ, through his perfect life and death, he perfectly satisfied all the demands of the law, and he fulfilled all the purposes of the law. And by doing those two things, he reconciles us to God, and he reconciles us to each other, to those who we would be at odds with. So the first one, let's think of the reconciliation we have with God. You think of the law, first of all, the original covenant of works, demanding perfect obedience, and whose conditions must be satisfied in order for man to be reconciled with God. Remember Romans chapter 2, Paul says that even Gentiles have the law written on their hearts, knowing good and evil, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the Jew, the Bible is clear that the purpose of the law, Galatians 3, was to confine all under sin. The law came, the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, the law came not as a vehicle by which they could be made righteous in their own works, but more as a mirror to show them their need of a Savior, their unrighteousness, to be a tutor to drive them to Jesus. You've probably heard this, the law is like the carpenter's level. You know that, that tool that a carpenter uses? Uh, it has a bubble in the middle to show you if the foundation is off. It can't fix the foundation. It only diagnoses the problem. And the law shows us that we are sinners. And so both Jew and Gentile are doomed without the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Romans 2, listen to this. For all, verse 12, have sinned, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So listen, whether the law is written on your hearts as a Gentile or, or you, as a Jew uh, th through Moses, you've received the Ten Commandments, you're in the same boat. Man is a sinner and deserving of eternal punishment. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. This speaks such volumes to me as a former Muslim. Because I was taught, again, as a former Muslim, that all of my good deeds and all of my bad deeds are recorded throughout my life, and they'll be weighed upon a scale when I die. 
And whichever one outweighs the other will determine if I go to heaven or hell. Now, before you think that's crazy what Muslim theology teaches, there's many people who sit in churches, they might as well be Muslim. When I talk to them and I ask them, how do you know that you're forever going to be with God in all, for all eternity? And they say, well, I read my Bible. My parents were Christian as if it passes down through genes. My grandparents were missionaries. Well, praise God for them. Oh, don't worry about me, Afshin. I was born a Christian. Wow, you were the first one, right? Right on the delivery table. I was born a Christian. No one's born a Christian. We're all born in sin, dead, spiritually separated from God. I, I went down an aisle. I checked the box. If you think your salvation starts with anything, has anything to do with a sentence that starts with I something, you probably missed the gospel. And so the Bible never says be 51% good. It never says be 75% good. It never says just make a B, 80%. In fact, God's righteous standard is perfection. Cursed is that anyone who does not keep all of it. And that's why Jesus came to be made a curse for us on the cross. He goes on to say, did you know even Muslims believe he lived a sinless life, but they don't know why? He lived a sinless life and he died on the cross to shed his perfect blood for you. And the Bible says when he died on that cross in the temple where the Holy of Holies was, which was the presence of God, there was a veil that separated the people of God from the presence of God. And only the high priest once a year could venture back behind that veil. And even he would have a rope tied to his ankle in case he died so they could pull him out. And once a year, he would go back there and offer sacrifices for himself and for the people. But this was a ritual that they kept on, and it was meant to be a shadow pointing forward to the true fulfillment, which is Jesus, who died a once and for all death on the cross, a spotless sacrifice to be sufficient to pay for sins. And when he died, that veil was torn in two. So that both Jew and Gentile have access now to the Father through the blood of Christ. And so our reconciliation came at a great cost. No, he doesn't just toss the law aside. He fulfilled the demands of the law. Listen to how Charles Hodge says it. The abolishing does not consist of setting the law aside or suspending it by a sovereign act. It is causing it to cease or render it no longer a binding by satisfying its demands so that we are ju 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 judiciously, excuse me, freed from it. Free not by the act of a sovereign, but by the sentence of a judge. Not by mere pardon, but by justification. And this is huge. I've spoken with my Muslim father before, and he says, Christianity makes no sense, Afshin. What do you mean? He goes, well, you just pray a prayer and accept Jesus, and he just brushes all the sins under the carpet. And I said, no, Dad. I didn't have time to tell him. Actually, most workspace system teach that. As long as you have more good, all your bad is just going to be brushed under the carpet. I said, no, no, no. Just as Dr. Carson was teaching us, at the cross, the full wrath and the grace of God meet. Our sins are not brushed under the carpet. Every one of our sins, past, present, and future, when you put your faith in Jesus... Again, granted to you by the Father to do so. 
The Bible says you unite to Christ and all of your sins, past, present, and and future, are accounted for and paid for by the precious blood of Christ. It's paid in full. It's not brushed under the carpet. And then it's perfect righteousness, the great exchange, is credited to you. And so you have peace with God, but then he says we have peace between Jew and Gentile. This is the second sense that Jesus abolishes the law, the Mosaic law, with all its dietary laws, cleansing rituals, and again, circumcision. All of this was given to Israel to make them holy, which means set them apart from all the other nations, set them apart to God. And this was a source of pride for the Jews, and therefore they segregated themselves from the Gentiles. You know, especially in worship, in the temple courts. Remember, it wasn't just the veil that separated the holy of holies from the people of God, but there was also another dividing wall. And that's what he's referencing here. That divided the Gentiles where they could enter in to where the Jews could enter in. And in fact, there was an inscription on that wall that said, if any Gentile passes here, they only have themselves to blame for their death. But Jesus, through his death on the cross abolish the Mosaic law by fulfilling all its types and shadows. All of the Mosaic law with its sacrifices, cleansing rituals, all of it was fulfilled by the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul in Galatians 5 says, if you accept circumcision, you are actually cut off from Christ. You who would be justified by a work of the law. If you add anything to Jesus, you are actually being cut off from Jesus. And so because of that, what they were putting stock in before God, these things that you gave us that you didn't give other people that we were doing, they realized that, no, 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 now in Christ, it's all been fulfilled. Those bring no value. It's only through faith in Jesus. And both Jew and Gentile have equal standing before God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, look at verse 18. In verse 18, he says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Don't miss the Trinity there. All active in the redemptive plan of God. Right? Through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Salvation is to the Father. It's through the Son. It's by the work of the Spirit. But here's what I want you to see, and don't miss this. The major point I think Paul is making here is that since they both have access by the Spirit through Jesus to the Father, they are on equal footing before God. Therefore, there should be no air of superiority, but rather unity. It's interesting that he says, Paul makes the point about through the Spirit. Remember, in Acts, this was the evidence the church needed to see that the Gentiles were co-heirs with Jews. Remember in Acts, remember the story in Acts 10 when Peter has a vision and there's a sheet coming with all kinds of animals, both clean and unclean. And he hears a voice saying, Peter, take, kill, and eat. And he says, I will not touch what is common and unclean. And God says to him, don't call what I have made common and unclean. And right then there's a rap at the door and a man named Cornelius, a Gentile, has called for Peter. And Peter comes into a Gentile man's home, bridges that racial divide, preaches the gospel. They receive the Holy Spirit. And he baptizes them. He goes back and the good Christians back in Jerusalem actually rebuked Peter for what he did. How dare you preach the gospel to the Gentiles? And what does he say? If they receive the Spirit in the same manner we have, who am I to stand in God's way? 
And the Bible says, one of my favorite verses, the church fell silent and they glorified God because they understood the message of the gospel was not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile. When they saw, wait a minute, the spirit came to them. They have access like we do through Jesus. They understood it's for the Gentile too. And the mission was born and the church was mobilized in Acts 13 and ultimately went out to the Gentile world. And so you get to the final section. Are you still with me? Say yes, yeah? I know you're ready for lunch. Stay with me. This is the, actually the point of my sermon. So then, verse 19 through 22, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In him, verse 22, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What is he doing here? He's saying, now two people who were strangers and aliens, and in fact, enemies, are now, he says, they're actually fellow citizens. And then he almost stops himself and goes, wait a minute, no, it's actually even more intimate than that. They're members of the household of God. They're family members, actually. And then he goes, no, 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 it's actually even more intimate than that. They are building blocks, bricks, if you will, making up together the temple of God where the Spirit of God resides. You see how it's ramping up in its intensity. You are fellow citizens now, meaning I have more in common with a Christian living in the remote mountains of Nepal than I do with a pagan American living with me in Dallas. I have more in common. I am a Christian before I am an American. And that's something we need to remember. We're family members. I am to care for the body of Christ as my own family. I'm living testimony. I lost my earthly family, but the church took me in and I received a family. For all who leave father and mother and brother and sister behind will receive family. And so the picture of Ruth, I love this, that Ruth leaves family for the relationship she was committed to, Naomi, her mother-in-law. You know the story, your God will be my God. She puts her trust in the God of Israel, comes to Israel, and Boaz shows her undeserved kindness. You remember this? And she's stunned, and she says, why are you showing me this kindness? And Boaz says, it's been reported all that you've done to leave your family and come to find refuge under the wings of Yahweh. In other words, your faith has been made known. You left your family to identify with God, to put your faith in God. And therefore, what he's saying, you have moved from being a foreigner to being my family member. And so I'm going to be extravagant in my care for you. And so this is how we're to be. And we're the temple of God, friends. What Ephesians will go on to say is that the unity of Jew and Gentile in the church should astound the world. In fact, astound, again, the rulers in the heavenly realms should be astounded when they see two people who normally would not associate with each other if you look at the standards of the world. But in the church, they're actually putting the other before themselves. And this is a, the gospel is at stake here in a country that continues to have drastic racial divides. The church should lead the way in demonstrating this kind of unity among racial lines, especially. 
We should, we should lead the way in this. Because at the end of the day, when we are not united, when we are showing favoritism to a particular group over and against another group, we are undercutting the message of the gospel. This is why Peter, think of this, excuse me, Paul in Galatians. I mean, this was such an important deal for him that he approaches Peter and calls him out. Remember? He said, you're associating with the Gentiles, but when the people from Jerusalem, from the church came, you saw these Jews coming, you then pulled away. And he says, I had to rebuke him because he was not walking in step with what? The gospel. The gospel is at stake. If the church is divided, the gospel is not being declared as it should be. And so the church should be a place where there's this kind of beautiful unity. And friends, as I'm coming to my close, let me just say, to the outside world, and this is going to the next sermon, that's not me, which is a new mission, and I promise, sir, I'm not going to take your stuff. (laughs) But as a church, we should be zealous to love brothers and sisters of every race, every tribe, every tongue and nation, but then also knowing that there are elect out in the nations who have not yet been called, our mission should unite us. I love, I talked to my friend who's a Marine, and he said, you know what's interesting? In the Marines, we didn't really struggle with racism. I never experienced it. And he said, said, you know what? Because in the Marines, we all have an identity. Anyone who's a Marine has been through the same stuff to get to where we are. There's an identity, and we all have a mission. And he says, our identity and our mission so unite us that we don't have racism. Our identity, that we both have access through the Spirit to the Father. And our mission, that God is zealous for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be turned to Him. And that's what His blood has purchased. Therefore, our view of the world should change, friends. Racism is an affront to God because all mankind is made in His image. My wife was with my daughter at Walmart and there was an African-American lady and my, my daughter is like four years old at the time and she blurts out, Mommy, why is her skin color different than ours? And the lady heard it and Meredith's telling me this, I go, how did you answer that? And she said, I just said, Honey, the Bible says that mankind is made in the image of God. And God is so glorious that one skin color would not capture his glory. And so God... (laughs) Anyway, so anyway, God had to make... God, yeah, thank you. Sorry, I don't know. I, I wasn't expecting that to happen, but... I said, my wife is much wiser than me. God had to make people of every color to display his glory. People who are our enemies, our hearts should beat for them, especially at a time when they expect us to be their enemies, especially when an Islamic terrorism happens and people are expecting us to be enemies, especially when our governments are at odds. And just because we're from that government or from that country, they're expecting you to treat them differently. That's a time for you to reach out in love more than ever. 
I was so heartbroken after September 11th when an evangelist wrote an email that basically was rah-rah, America, let's go get them. And I wrote an email response back to him. I said, hey, I want the guys to be caught who did this. But this is a unique opportunity because I know Muslims are expecting us to treat them with contempt because of this. And if you love them at this time, you will display the gospel more than ever. And he wrote me back and he said, Afshin, we're not ready for that message. And he said to me, I'm not kidding you, you have to wrap yourself in the American flag a little bit more. And I said, bro, there are no American flags waving in the new heavens and the new earth, I believe. And so... Let me, let me say one more story and I get to my last little thought. My, my brother is not a Christian. He's a Muslim. My father is a Muslim. And we're talking about my, my brother's plans to get revenge against a, a, someone who's hurt him in high school. We start talking. My, bro, my father's trying to stop him from doing it. And I say to him, bro, what if you're able to love him instead of getting back at him? Forgive him. And what if it changes him? I'm not saying it'll happen. What if it changes him? Which would you rather have? And he goes, oh, I don't want to hear that. And my heart's racing. Even my dad looked at me and he starts telling me, well, in Islam, and he basically lays out an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth kind of a message. And I, and I said, my heart's racing because I've been praying to invite my dad to a movie. And I said, dad, you know, Mel Gibson just made a movie about the death of Jesus. And he's like, yeah, I heard. I go, do you want to go see it with me? And he's like, sure, why not? And he looks at my brother and goes, you want to go? And he's like, sure. So now I'm driving with my dad, Muslim dad, and my Muslim little brother to see the passion of Christ. And on the way there, my dad goes, okay, what do I need to know before it starts? <laughs> so I take him from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane as fast as I could, all right? And I said, it'll pick up there and you'll get the rest of the story. Now, can you imagine at the end of that Message at the end of that movie, I'm sitting between my Muslim father and a Muslim uh, brother, and Jesus stands at the end and says, you've heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. And I'm sitting between them just going, yes! Because that's the message of the gospel. That's what the world needs to hear. Jew and, and Muslim over and over again slapping each other in the Middle East. And the message of the gospel comes and says, you get what you do not deserve. And that's what's happening in Ephesians 2. Two who are at odds are now dependent on each other. And then let me say one last thing on this. And I would say as we look out to the world, not just in the church, this refugee crisis that's going on around us. I think... Let me just tell you, Ephesians 2 should smack every Christian in the face. Remember that you once were not a people. In the world, without God, without hope. And if you remember, it changes the way you view this crisis. So I was asked to go to the Washington, D.C., to sit on a panel with Dr. Russell Moore. Some of you know who he is, the head of the ERLC. There was a lady from World Relief, a, a person from our State Department, and then Afshin Ziafat, Iranian-American pastor from Frisco, Texas. I was like, why am I here? And we were tasked to give a Christian response to the refugee crisis. 
And here's what I said, and I'll tell you. And this is back when it first hit, and everyone was saying we've got to close the borders, and some people were saying we've got to even export Muslims. And I'm up here, listen to me, I'm not making any political statements from this pulpit. I'm going to let the government decide what they're going to do with the vetting process and the borders. That's not what I even addressed. I did say I believe our government is tasked to protect us, and I want safety. Hear me say I want safety. But this is what I said. But let's say a refugee does come into my neighborhood. How should I respond? I said, as a Christian, I cannot let safety be my overriding motive. Because I've got to think obligation. That the scriptures clearly teach me that I have to show hospitality to the stranger, to the refugee, to the sojourner in my midst. Especially the orphans and the widows amongst them. But then I have to think not just obligation, but I have to think opportunity. And so I shared my story. I wasn't a refugee necessarily, but there was fighting in Iran, the revolution, and because of that fighting, my family moved to America to escape that. And I said to them, there was a Christian tutor. And I'm just so thankful that one Christian lady looked at me and looked at my family and didn't see threat, but saw opportunity. And she loved me and met with me after school every day, read read me books and handed me a New Testament. And 10 years later, I read that New Testament and came to faith in Christ. So you have no idea that one of these refugees cut off without hope, without a land, might be the next Afshin Ziafat. And so there's great opportunity. And so Christian, listen to me. We have to remember, and this is going to set up hopefully the mission statement, the mission message, excuse me, that we have this time here on this earth that's limited. And the goal of a Christian should not be to try to extend my days by any means possible, thinking safety first, but to spend every one of my days that God gives me fulfilling this mission to see the church become a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to the glory of God that would astound the world and display the gospel. This is why Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I know suffering and affliction await me there. And it's almost as if he knows what they're thinking. Well, then why why are you going there? And he goes, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, but only that I finish the course of the ministry God gave me to preach The gospel to the Gentiles. He's saying I've got something more important, more valuable than even my life. And it's this picture. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming to Jesus. So before I pray, let me just say to you, if you're here in our midst and you're searching, maybe someone invited you and you're saying, why Jesus? What do I need to do? All right? Again, it's very clear in Ephesians 2, you can do nothing. The message isn't go and become better. Go and fix yourself up. The message is know that you're doomed apart from Jesus. And God has made only one way for you to stand right with him. And this is why he says, in Christ Jesus, you are brought near. This is why Paul, hear me, hear me say this. Paul says, if you want to talk about resumes before God, I've got the greatest resume. My heritage, I can line it up to Abraham. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. If you want to talk about my works, I was zealous. I persecuted the church even. I was perfect to the law. He's saying, I have the heritage and I have the works. And what does he say? He says, but I count all of that rubbish compared to one thing, knowing Jesus. And listen to what he says. I want to be found in him having a righteousness that is not of my own, but a righteousness that depends on faith, that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So the call for you, if you're not a believer, is this. Know that you're a sinner. You know it in your heart. You turn away from God just as we all do. Know that God has made one way. It's through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And know that God is calling you to respond. The way you respond is say yes to Jesus. Confess that he is your Savior and Lord. Believe in him. Put your faith in his finished work. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for the message of the gospel. And we thank you that it changes our standing with you and it changes our standing with one another. And oh God, may we be a people who are in awe of your grace. Father, I pray for the one in this room, maybe who's here that does not know you. Have a personal relationship with you. And God, I pray by your power and grace alone that you would open eyes to see the gift of Jesus that you are offering and that they would humbly receive Jesus by faith. And God, all of us who call ourselves Christians, as we go to lunch, may the thought on our mind just continually be, remember that at one time, you were a stranger, an alien, but you were brought near by the blood of Christ. And God, may it shape the way we treat one another in our churches, and may it shape the way we reach out to the world. And may the gospel be clearly seen through your church. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.